0: Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the son of Christ, that he was Christ.
1: It's good to be here with you with our Bibles open and I do want to invite you to keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 16 for the next few minutes. Um, if you are somewhere, I'm going I'm to do a raise your hand thing, just going to give you a little heads up, all right? <laughs> so um, if you are somewhere in between about 10 years old and 25 years old, can I get you to raise your hand here? 10 years old to 25 years old. These are our brothers and sisters representing a group that we call Gen Z. Wear it with pride. It's interesting, you know, if you talk to people about Gen Z and religion or Gen Z and spirituality, one thing that will often come up is there is this assumption that Gen Z people are done with Christianity. Um, Based on my observation of society and based on the individuals I know who actually are Gen Z, And based on some studies that I've read, I think those folks who suspect that Gen Z is done with Christianity are dead wrong. In fact, one recent study that paid attention to thousands of Gen Z people from across America, living in different regions of our country, noticed that 75% of Gen Z people, regardless of whether they attend church or not regularly, 75% of people in America between, between 10 years old and 25 years old, 75% of them say that they are motivated to learn more about Jesus. And of course, that raises some questions. Because if 75% of y'all's generation, Gen Z folks, say that they want to learn more about Jesus, that they're motivated to learn more about Jesus, and if it's also true, which it is, that fewer Gen Z people are going to church regularly than people in their age bracket 25 or 30 years ago, How are they going to learn more about Jesus? Of course, the question is not specific only for Gen Z folks. Uh, I myself live at the border of Gen X and millennials. Um, So some generation theory people call people my age a Gen Xer like Kurt Cobain and company, yeah? Um, and others call people my age millennials. My favorite designation is those generation theory people who call people my age geriatric millennials. And the very first time I heard that phrase, I was like, that's mine for the rest of my life. I am proud to be a geriatric millennial, whatever that, whatever that nonsensical conflation of terms really means. But whether you are millennial or Gen Xer or geriatric millennial or greatest generation or boomer or wherever you find yourself age wise, isn't it true among our peers that there is this discrepancy between people who say, yes, I would be motivated to learn more about Jesus on the one hand and people who are actually moving in that direction on the other There's a gap sometimes in every generation between those who would say, I want to learn more about Jesus, I'm motivated, and those who are actually moving in that direction. It raises a question, if we are going to learn more about Jesus, if we want to learn more about Jesus, like 75% of people in Gen Z in America say that they are, if we're going to learn more about Jesus, A... What will we learn about him? And B, what difference will it make in our lives? These are questions that the New Testament helps us answer. If we want to learn more about Jesus, there is no better place to begin than with our Bibles open listening to what the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, these biographies of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament. If we want to learn more about Jesus, there's no better place to begin than with our Bibles open listening to what God's word itself in Scripture, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, tells us about Jesus. And here in our passage for today, we will get some light shed on these questions of if we're going to learn more about Jesus, according to the New Testament, what will we discover about him and what difference will it make? Our passage for today unfolds in two parts. What the disciple says about Jesus, verses 13 through 16. And then what Jesus says about his disciple in verses 17 through 19. We begin with what the disciple says about Jesus here in our passage. And you heard Sandy read it just a minute ago. And so I won't belabor it or hide it from you. The, the big headline... Of verses 13 through 16 is that Peter, one of the disciples, says in response to Jesus's question, who do you say that I am? He says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to use language that comes to us from the Old Testament part of the Bible. All of those places that the Bible speaks of anointing, especially when the Old Testament speaks of anointing the kings of Israel, like great King David. These passages are using a Hebrew word for the Mashiach. Or the Messiah, we would say, in English. A Hebrew word that in Greek is translated as Christos, or Christ, in English. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to associate Jesus with the great kings of Israel, in fact, beyond the great kings of Israel, to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the King, the long-awaited Messiah King that all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to. This is a massive claim that Peter is making, and it gets only bigger when we realize that Peter not only says You are the Messiah King. He also identifies Jesus as the son of the living God. Now, in order to understand the significance of this statement, we need to pay just a little bit of attention to the context here. In order to understand what Peter is saying When he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, we need to realize, first of all, that the location of this discussion matters. The location is significant. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, as Sandy read a minute ago, Jesus is traveling in the district of Caesarea Philippi. If we read a little bit of information from people who know more about the geography and culture and history than even I know about these things, they will tell us that Caesarea Philippi is out on the margins of Israel in Jesus's day. He's traveling among the margins. And as we Have seen, if we've read the past couple of paragraphs in Matthew 14, 15, and 16, Jesus has been traveling around the margins for some time, ministering not only to Jewish people, but even to those that the Jewish people would call Gentiles. And now Jesus is traveling in the district of Caesarea Philippi. That city, Caesarea Philippi, is named Caesarea Because it has a distinct connection with Caesar. It's kind of Caesar City, if you will, in its region. And in order to become Caesar City, the people of that city had built a massive stone statue. A kind of temple almost to worship their political leader in the empire. And so if we picture Jesus walking through the streets of Caesarea Philippi, along with his disciples, one of the scenes that we need to visualize is we need to see Peter and the disciples and Jesus walking along a street and noticing up on a high place, there is that giant temple devoted to the worship of the political leader of our empire. And as they walk a little further down the road, they pass by another temple, a temple which was not built in devotion to Yahweh, the covenant God of the Hebrew people, but rather a temple that was built for the worship of the pagan god Pan, not Peter, the old one. But They're passing by this temple designed for the the worship of what people from Jesus' tradition would call a false idol. Not only is the location significance of this profession of faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the dialogue also matters in this passage. With the statue of the political leader of their empire up on the hill, with the temple representing other world religions on the other side of the road, Jesus asks a question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the answers begin to come. The answers emphasize some of the greatest figures, some of the greatest prophets in redemptive history. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other great prophets. And now Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And here's what we need to recognize in this moment. is This is a profound question. <laughs> And it's a profound question that takes place at a certain time, which also matters. We've noticed something about the place and something about the dialogue. It's also worth considering the time when this question is asked. Who do you say that I am? You might notice simply by counting chapters that we are 16 chapters into Matthew's gospel. And Matthew's gospel lasts about 28 chapters total. We're right about in the middle of Matthew's presentation of who Jesus is. Historically or chronologically speaking, Peter has been following Jesus for a couple of years now. And after a few years of following Jesus, after a few years of hearing teaching about Jesus, after a few years of seeing what Jesus does and how Jesus lives and how Jesus loves people and how Jesus warns people, after a few years of following Jesus, now Jesus asks Peter the question, who do you say that I am? The timing is significant not only because Peter has already been following and learning for a few years. It's also significant because Peter's going to mess up a few more times before it's all said and done. I think we need to recognize that. In fact, we'll notice this next week. But as much as Peter offers a heroic answer in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, skim down, if you would, to verse 23. A few verses later, Jesus is going to explain that the son of man must suffer and die. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. And verse 23, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) <laughs> the contrast also almost creates some whiplash here. On the one hand, here's Peter and he gets it. Five verses later, get behind me, Satan. And if you know much at all about the story of the Gospels, you know that Peter will fail again and again and again on this very issue of the identity of Jesus. Jesus. I do not know him. I'm telling you, I don't even know that man. I don't even know him. The timing of this confession is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, we realize that Peter has taken a few years even to get to this point. And we realize that even having come this far toward recognizing the identity of Jesus, As the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter still has stumblings up ahead in the pathway of discipleship. In other words, if we want to summarize what's significant about the timing, we might notice that Peter is still in the middle of a discipleship journey. A discipleship journey that has been going on for some time, and a discipleship journey that has not yet rendered him perfect. So putting these pieces together, we realize the significance a little more deeply of what's going on here when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter while he is still in the middle of this journey that's taken a little while to get this far and that isn't yet complete, this journey of discipleship, he nonetheless comes to this crucial recognition that Jesus and the New Testament affirm as absolutely accurate. He's come to this recognition that above all earthly powers... And above all political idols and over all the world's religions and all of their teachings and beyond any of the greatest prophets in history, Jesus stands alone as the Messiah King who is the Son of God, who is alive. Of course, Jesus did influence history even more than Caesar. And of course, the teachings of Jesus have outlived the religion of Pan, And of course, Jesus is a part of that great tradition of prophets who speak on behalf of Yahweh. But Jesus is not only a world influencer. Jesus is not only a religious teacher like all the other religious teachers in the world. In fact, Jesus, while he is a great prophet, is not only one of many great prophets throughout history. Do you see what I'm saying? If we take Peter's words, what Peter is showing us is that if we get to know Jesus, the real Jesus the true Jesus, the one who lived in history, then at some point we are going to discover that he is above all earthly powers and allegiances, above and beyond and over all other world religions and teachings of world religions and beyond the tradition of the greatest prophets, we will realize that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, not only somebody to be followed like a great influencer, not only somebody to be heard like a world religion who might improve your life a little bit, not only as somebody whose voice might speak as one of many authorities. But above, over, and beyond all other voices, if we get to know the true Jesus of history, we will find ourselves bowing before him in humble submission and surrender. Like Peter saying, you are the Christ, the true king. And you are the son of the living God. And therefore, all allegiance is due to you. Now, maybe I could pause for just a moment and speak to some of you who feel really keenly, who feel really personally, like you're still in the middle of your own journey of discovery. I think there might be some comfort in realizing that it took Peter a few years of being with Jesus and his teachings every day before he even got this far. And so if there are some of you who say, I'm really interested in Jesus, but I just don't seem to have the same level of faith as some of the other people around me. If you're somebody who says, I'm really interested in Jesus, but I just don't seem to be there where other people are. I want to encourage you with this episode in the life of Jesus, that it is not uncommon for it to take years before things begin to click. And so I'd like to invite you to join the journey to dig in and to discover for yourself what God's word tells us about Jesus. I want to invite you to come and to grow along with the rest of us in this journey of meeting Jesus, learning his ways and understanding who he is and what that means for our lives. I'd love to invite you to come along on that journey. But I'd also like to say this. If that's you and you just kind of say, yes, I'm very interested in Jesus. I'm very interested in learning more about him. But I just don't seem to be there. Look, I wonder if God's word open in front of us today is not an accident. Inviting you to take a step from just learning about Jesus to humbly submitting your life to Jesus as King. I wonder if even today might be the day when you realize there's a pivot point in my life, not meaning you'll be perfect from here on out. I mean, five verses later in your life, you might need to be rebuked like Peter also. But I wonder if for somebody here today, today, Like for Peter, this might be a pivot point, a turning point. When you say, I've been hearing about, I've been learning about, I've been gathering information, I've been hearing the teaching of Jesus, but today I need to say it for the first time. Jesus, you are the King, the Son of the living God, and therefore my life is devoted to you. Peter would later say to groups of people listening to him teach about the life of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus. Peter would look out at crowds and he would say, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Spirit of God. Today, The same offer is extended to us. Join Peter in his profession. Repent. Be baptized. Experience the forgiveness of your sins and the fullness of God's presence in your life. Join that journey of growing in devotion to Jesus even today. And perhaps for some of us, who would say, I have been following Jesus as a devoted disciple for some amount of time. Maybe there's something in this episode in the life of Christ. Maybe there is something in Matthew sixteen sixteen. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Maybe there's something in that that just needs to open our eyes a little wider. And wake us up. And get our hearts beating and energize us spiritually at a deeper level as we realize the lordship of Jesus who is king. The lordship of Jesus who truly is the Christ. The lordship of Jesus who is the son of the living God. And maybe that needs to do something to us in stirring our hearts toward greater devotion to him. Greater devotion to Him above all earthly powers. Greater devotion to Him over all other ethical and religious teachings. Greater devotion to Him above and beyond anybody else in the history of redemption. What the disciple says to Jesus is you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And what difference does that make for us? It should stir in us a greater devotion to Him. To Jesus. The Christ. The Son of the living God. But we need to move on from what the disciple says to Jesus. And pay attention also to what Jesus says to His disciple. In verses 13-13. Through six, excuse me, in verses uh, 17 through 19. We'll need to look at this one verse at a time. The first thing that Jesus says about his disciple is essentially this You are blessed. You're blessed. Look with me, if you would, at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To the one who looks at Jesus and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, You are blessed because that reflects something supernatural. Supernatural. Some of us may think about our own faith in Jesus. And we may say, you know, I've been following Jesus for a lot of my life, but it's no big deal because I mean like my my grandma and grandpa followed Jesus. And now I'm following, like just people follow Jesus, no big deal. But Jesus himself would like a word with that perspective. If after years of following Jesus... You have somehow come to the conclusion it's no big deal that I'm following Jesus. Jesus would like a word. And he would like to remind you you did not end up following Jesus because of flesh and blood alone. This isn't just something that happens in certain families. It isn't just something that happens to certain people. It isn't just something that you've done. If you've discovered that Jesus is the Christ King, the Messiah King, the son of the living God, then you are blessed. It's not no big deal. It is a big deal. You are blessed. And you are one who has experienced a profound and supernatural miracle deep within your soul. If you've ever tried to help somebody else come to faith in Jesus. And there's that point very often when people hear the message of Jesus and we explain to them, this is what the message of Jesus is. We tell them about Jesus and his identity as the son of God and his mission in entering our world to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and then to rise in triumphant victory over the powers of sin and death. We tell them the message of Jesus and we invite people to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And most people, like me, have questions. And there is pushback. And there are responses and the process can go on and on and on. And if you've ever sat down with somebody and tried to answer their questions, at some point, as the one who's trying to tell somebody about Jesus and as the one who's trying to answer questions about Jesus, haven't you realized that you can't make that happen for anybody else? There's something that you can't do in somebody else's hearts. And have you connected the dots to realize the same is true for you? No matter how much that person genuinely cared about you and no matter how accurately they gave you the message of jesus christ and him crucified and no matter how patiently they taught you about the ways of jesus if you have recognized the lordship of jesus christ and if you have surrendered your life in discipleship to him and if you are on that journey of following him let me tell you flesh and blood did not reveal that to you That's because of a miracle. Something profoundly spiritual and supernatural. The Father himself, by the work of his spirit within you, has awakened something. The first thing that Jesus says to his disciple is, listen, This is not just no big deal. You are blessed. But now we need to move on to the next verse, verse 18. And I probably need to warn you that Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 is a verse that is interpreted different ways by different people. And it has inspired a lot of debates, especially over the last 500 years among Christians and theologians. And if some of you are hoping that I came here today to explain 500 years of debates and simplify them for you and resolve them for you, let me just tell you, you and I can hang out in a club of our own, because most people here don't want me to do that. (laughs) We can have a conversation later about some of those debates. But what happens in verse 18 is Jesus says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You are Peter. Up until this point, it seems that he was known by the name his mom gave him, Simon. But now Jesus renames him Rocky. It's the English translations, the best one we've got. Peter doesn't get the point. The name is Petros, which sounds a lot like the Greek word Petra, which means rock. So Jesus says, all right, Simon, I'm giving you a new name. From now on, you're Rocky among my disciples. And then he says, Rocky. Rocky. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now the debate, which I'm not going to get fully into, revolves around this question. What is this rock? Is it Peter, Rocky, the guy himself? Or is it the confession that he just made? Or are we doing some modern Western thing and trying to divide a person in half when the person and their words shouldn't really be divided from each other? It's 500 years of debate I just did in two sentences. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) But here's the thing. Wherever we land in that spectrum, and we can land in different places of that spectrum, Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So as long as we recognize the supreme authority of Jesus and the utterly foundational nature of Jesus himself, we can say there's something foundational about Peter. Rocky can be the rock. But in context, there are other reasons to think it's not just that Jesus walks up to Peter and says, you look like a mighty fine building stone. I mean, I'm just about to tell him, get behind me, Satan. Like Jesus is not impressed with Peter at this point in Peter's discipleship, right? But what is it? It's the words of Peter that elicits this response, right? You are the Christ. And so, is it Rocky himself? Is it Rocky's words that will serve as a foundation? Rocky's conviction? Or some combination of the two? Peter, who confesses Jesus as the Christ? However we put these things together, I want to point out something to you. Rocky himself, Simon Peter thinks that what is foundational about him somehow connects with or maybe even extends through the rest of the church, including you and me. And so if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, one thing that Peter says is he says that you, like living stones, are being built up in Him. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, whatever this relationship is, as Jesus is saying, your name is Rocky and on this rock I'm building the church, whatever it is, Peter thinks that it's something that extends, well, to the rest of the church that Jesus is building, because you too are little Rockies. You too are among the stones who are being built up in Jesus's spiritual house. Okay, we've been looking at verse 18 for a little while now. And I want to kind of move toward a point that might feel a little more relevant. I hope I haven't lost too many of you along the way. The point I want to make is that after Jesus says, You're blessed. He also says to his church, You're secure. Why? Because Jesus says, not, your name is Rocky, and you're going to build my church for me. That would leave us a little insecure, wouldn't it? He says, your name is Rocky, and on this rock, I'm building something. Um, you know, when you watch a sporting event, a baseball game, football game, football match on a pitch, uh, whatever sport you watch afterwards, there's the interview that comes at the end and, you know, someone comes over with a microphone and they're talking like a mile a minute, they're so happy and excited, blah, 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 blah. what does this mean to you, right? And very often the athletes are like, we won the game, you know, like you're missing the point, right? Um, I wasn't thinking about what happened to my jersey, right? You know, um, I wasn't thinking about that penalty. Uh, I think if we could do a post-game interview with Peter over here. And this whole thing had just happened. Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm renaming you Rocky. And on this rock, I'm and on this rock, I will build my church. And people come over with their microphones and they're like, Peter, what does it feel like to be the one who's the rock? I think Peter would look back and say, you're missing the points. Jesus just said he's going to build something. Something. If we read Matthew 16, 18, and we walk away only thinking about what it says about Peter, I think we put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Tracking with me? The right pieces are there. They're all there in verse 18, but it's emphasized all the wrong way. If we ask Peter, what's the big deal in Matthew 16, 18? He would say the big deal is that Jesus is building something. He's building something bigger than a ragtag group of 12 disciples who keep on botching it. He's building something bigger and more secure. And he's building it not by our strength and our successfulness and our resources as builders. He's the one doing it you know what that means for us? It means that as part of the church of Jesus Christ, we have a certain security because of our connection with him. It's not up to us to be the expert builders. It's not up to us to figure out how it's done. It's not reliant on us to figure it all out. He's the one who builds. And to the degree that we are resting ourselves on him, the foundational stone of all foundational stones, Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone, as long as our weight is resting on him, we are secure. In other words, if I could put it like this for you, what this means for us as the church is that Jesus has got us. That's good news, isn't it? What Jesus says about his disciple. He says you're blessed. Church family, he says to you, you're secure. Which is to say that neither Caesar. Nor any other prophet. Nor any other kind of teacher. Can ever snatch you away from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God for that. What Jesus says about his disciple includes one more thing in verse 19. He also tells us, you're sent. You're sent in verse 19. Now, verse 19 also has its challenges. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now these words get a little complicated because sometimes people assume that they mean that anybody who claims Jesus' authority can kick somebody out of heaven. And so any old group of people who call themselves elders can hold a grudge against someone in their church and then say, we don't like you, so we're saying to you, go to hell. And then those elders might point to Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, with an eyebrow raised and say, watch out. Here's what I want to say to you very clearly. That's messed up. On so many levels. Is not what this passage is about. But it is about something. What are these keys of the kingdom. That Jesus is handing. To his disciples. To his church. What are these keys? Think of it like this. Maybe we could use another New Testament image. The image of an ambassador. What is the job of an ambassador? Is to represent the king's. Message. In another place, to represent the king and his kingdom priorities in another place. An ambassador speaks with authority, but the ambassador does not speak with his or her own intrinsic authority. The ambassador only speaks with authority to the degree that his or her message lines up with the will of the king himself. Or think of it like a business credit card. You work for a business, and after you've been working there for some time, you gain enough trust that you get a business credit card. That credit card gives you authority to go and swipe and spend money. And if you've got a big old spending limit, you could go and spend it on a lot of stuff. But that would be messed up. (laughs) And you get accountability fast, right? Or think of it like this. Think of it like a coach's whistle coach is getting close to the end of practice. And he takes his whistle off and he hands it to the assistant coach. And he says, I'm giving you my whistle. You're in charge for the rest of practice. That does not mean the assistant coach has the authority to rewrite the playbook. It does not mean that the assistant coach now has authority to go and do whatever he or she feels like with the players. Carrying The ambassador's message, carrying the company card, carrying or holding the coach's whistle has a certain kind of responsibility that goes along with it. So it is with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to the church, I'm giving you authority to go into a world where there are political powers that will claim authority over you. I'm sending you out into a world where there are other religions that will say, your word doesn't count. I'm sending you out into a world where other teachers may claim authority over me, but I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. It's like, maybe this is the most helpful analogy... It's like getting house sitters keys. You can come and go as you please. You can let other people in and out. But you need to respect the wishes of the homeowner for as long as you hold those keys in your hand. And in the same way, we as the church have a mission like the mission of an ambassador. We have a mission that is like the ambition of a coach with a whistle around our neck. We have, an, we have a mission that is like the mission of a house sitter, which is exactly what Peter does in the book of Acts. You notice in Acts chapter 2, Jesus, Peter stands up, Rocky gets up, and begins to tell crowds about the judgment that is coming that will land on those who do not repent in humility before Jesus. And he proclaims the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as he proclaims that message, what is he doing? He's closing the door to some. He's saying to some, if you refuse to bow in humility... No matter how much power and money and satisfaction you have in this life. You will always remain a slave to your fears and a slave to your wealth and a slave to your desires. Unless you humble yourself. Before King Jesus. But not only does Peter close the door for those who refuse to bow. He also swings wide the gates for all who would come. I love to teach at Wayside Cross and I was there a couple weeks ago teaching a class and I read these words and the guys sat up and they said, can you tell us where that is again? They wanted to turn there and see it for themselves. For consider your calling, brothers. To us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written. Let the one who boasts. Boast in the Lord. I said listen. Here's our job as ambassadors. Here's our job with the coach's whistle. Here's our job with the keys of the kingdom. It's to walk around waving these keys around. Telling people even if other people look down on you in this world as if you're not somebody, and even if you don't feel like you've had a lot of power and respect, and even if you don't have a lot of money or status or influence, you are invited to come and by the invitation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, by the invitation of Jesus, the Messiah King, the Son of the living God, you are invited. To a banquet with the king himself. Come. Come one. Come all. Come. Meet the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you have a growing devotion to Jesus as the Christ, then you are blessed. You are secure. And you are sent. Let me wrap up simply by connecting a few of the dots here. We began with something of a question. If we are motivated to learn more about Jesus, then according to the New Testament, if we meet the true and historical Jesus, what will we discover about him and what difference will it make? Let me try to connect the dots like this. A growing devotion to Jesus Christ should lead toward a growing devotion to what he is building. Above all earthly powers, over all religious teachers, beyond all others who claim to speak on the Lord's behalf, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we grow in our devotion to him, We also grow in our devotion to what he's building. We find ourselves with humility saying, I am blessed to see him for who he is. And I am secure as a part of what he's doing. And I'm sent with a mission to play my small part in the great story of what he's doing around the world and across the ages until the day when he returns. A growing devotion to Jesus Christ should lead toward a growing devotion to what he's building. So, perhaps just a moment of reflection for you. How's your devotion to Jesus as the Messiah King? And how's your devotion what he's doing what he says he's building here in this world